And having worked our way through Matthew, observing its anticipation of, for the Olivet Discourse, all the way up to the disciples' question about the timing of the, the temple's destruction. They, they say, when, when will these things be? And, and the sign of the end of the age. We're now prepared to understand Jesus' two-part response to his disciples as he sat on the Mount of Olives overlooking Jerusalem and her temple. With that first part of Jesus' answer, again, from verse 4 to 34, describing the timing of Jerusalem's fall and of the fall of the temple. And then a shift in Jesus' words and tone from verse 36 to the end of the discourse, focusing upon the latter part of the disciples' question of Christ's coming and of the end of the age. But before we jump into verse 4 of Jesus' response, today I want us to actually, we're going to jump ahead to consider the concluding verse of that first response, which is verse 34. Because if, I, if it, I think if we can clarify and just solidify where Jesus is going throughout verses 4 to 34... If we see where this all goes at, the, at that last verse, it will help to keep us from derailing off track along the way as we start in verse 4. Because we know where we're going. So verse 34 is where we're going to be spending most of our time today. But again, for the sake of context, let's begin today's reading. We're going to go back. We're going to read a big chunk today back um, to chapter 23 verse 29, to that last and final woe against the scribes and Pharisees in chapter 23, verse 29. So I'll invite you to stand with me for the reading of the Word of God. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate, for I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see these things, do you not? Truly I say to you, 
There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. So when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant in, for the, in those days, and, or, who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and prophets, false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if, you, if, if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the suns will fall from, the, from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away.
But concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. This is the word of Christ. You may be seated. Let's ask for God's help. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would speak to us in power. We pray that you would give us understanding today. We pray that you would shed light in areas that perhaps have been darkened in the past. And that you would bring correction to where correction is needed and encouragement and inspiration and motivation to where encouragement is needed. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So again, we, as I said, we're focusing on those, that first verse, uh, that, sorry, that last verse of that section, verse 34. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So Jesus explicitly states that the temple's destruction about which they were asking and the, and the tribulations leading up to it would in fact occur within the disciples' own generation. And as confusing or mysterious or difficult to pinpoint some of those, these previous passages may be, and we're going to go through that over the next few weeks, the reason I wanted to jump ahead to verse 34 is because here we have a clear and a bold pronouncement regarding the time of the events being described throughout those preceding verses. And I say bold because unlike most of the false prophets and prophecies you'll hear today, right? They're basically, most, all the prophecies, prophecies you'll hear today are like, those, are like Chinese fortune cookies, right? They're, they're so broad and so general that there's no way to, be, to hold it accountable. There's no way to come back and to say, you said this and this happened. And so it is bold because Jesus is saying something here that can be tested, that can be proven. And, and essentially that's the test of a false or true prophet. Deuteronomy 18 uh, verse 22. It says when a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord. If the word does not come to pass or come true. That is a word that the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. And you need not be afraid of him. So Jesus is saying something. That is either going to come to pass or come true or not. And so that's why I say it's, bold. it's a bold statement that's being made. And before we get to the specific reference to the timing in that phrase, when he says this generation, that's the key part of phrase there. First note that similar to, that, to the shocking prediction that Jesus made in verse 2, when he mentions the destruction of the temple, We again have in verse 34, it's beginning with that same emphatic statement. Truly, I say to you. But let's first look at, again, truly. Or literally in the Greek, he he says, Amen. Uh, The commentator William Hendrickson notes, he says that in every case in which this word occurs, Amen, or, or truly, in every case it occurs in the New Testament, 
it introduces a statement which not only expresses truth or fact, but an important or a solemn fact, one that in many cases causes surprise or shock. Okay, so that's, that's what the kind of word that Jesus uses here to, to start off this statement. Truly, amen. In other words, as tempting as it may be to think that Jesus may have been saying something less specific. Um, maybe it's prophetic, but it's not as specific as we think. It's, it's, it's less miraculous than what he plainly said. Lest we think that, lest his disciples be led to think, maybe he's, he's not being, you know, he's being a little more broad than we think. Jesus is, is very clearly saying, truly, amen, listen up. I don't care how impossible, how unimaginable this is to your ears. He's saying, count on this. In, other, in English, today we would say, bank on this, right? Make, and, and usually scripture cautions us about making plans for the future, right? Uh, you who boast about what you'll do today or uh, tomorrow. Well, he, he, here he's saying, you can count on this tomorrow. Here's something that God is saying to you, to his disciples, that they can expect and plan on and count on. And then further, he adds on to that, truly. And then he says, I say to you. That is his disciples, he was speaking to there, right? Truly, I say to you. And he's further alerting them to pay attention to what he's about to say because it's urgent and it's relevant to them. And then just one more thing, as if, as if that wasn't enough of an emphasis to, to, to listen and pay attention. You don't see it in the English, but in the Greek, he uses a strong double negative. Haughty uh, ume, which literally, uh, if, if I were to translate it, it would say, truly I say to you, that know not this generation um, will pass away. It's, it makes no sense in English. That, no, not this generation will pass away until all these things take place. Uh, if a more understandable translation that brings that out would be, truly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. So we have, truly I say to you, by no means will this generation pass away until it takes place. Uh, one of the, my grammar uh, beyond basic books says that this is the strongest way to negate something in Greek. There's no stronger way to say this. It's as if Jesus is here staking his credibility upon the certainty of this prophetic and historic pronouncement. And, and he is. Which verse 35 actually, if you look at verse 35, seems to confirm when he, where he compares the reliability and dependability of this prophetic word as being equally, if not more reliable, than... The world that we live in and that we count on um, t- for the sun to rise the next day. Right? So verse 35, he says, heaven and earth 
will pass away, but my words will not pass away. In other words, right, we count on the patterns, great is thy faithfulness, right? Morning and summer, noontime and summer, uh, noontime and harvest. There's there's a pattern in creation that we we make our plans on, like, right? We, we, We count, as I said earlier, we count on it. We expect it. And here Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Right? If we can count on creation, if we can count on the sun to rise tomorrow, how much more can we expect and count and depend upon the prophetic word of God which spoke that creation as we know it into existence in the first place? You see that the point being made there. Right? There, there, there actually is also something incredible contextually um, that Jesus is implying in verse 35. I'm going to save that for later. But for now, I want you to see that essentially we have Jesus saying, which is greater? Right? Which is more worthy of your trust and confidence right now? The creation, which is quite a reliable testimony and, so, and to, something we can rely on. But which is more, which is greater, the creation or the word of the creator? Right? What we hear by faith from God's word or what we see by sight that is going on in the world. Colossians 1.16 says, For by him, that's Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So indeed, heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of Christ will not pass away. Right? If, you don't, if, if, if Christ's word is going to pass away, you don't have heaven and earth. He holds it all together. So you can take Jesus at his word. No matter how impossible that claim seems to be. And he's, he's saying this to his disciples. I don't care how hard this is for you to believe. You can trust my word. You can take my word on this. And if you don't believe it, for us today, if we don't believe it, the historical records are there for, for you to objectively test and to prove for yourself. And so repent and stop resisting the voice of the Good Shepherd and hear His voice and follow Him. This is actually one of the most popular passages that apologists used to use in the early church to prove the divine nature of Christ. Because its fulfillment was so evident at the time that it could not be denied by the most serious skeptics. So when he says, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Right? It, it was so... Uh, the, the, his, the prophecy, the declaration of the destruction of the temple, the famines, the wars that would come. It was so clear... That they would, they would point to this passage as saying, Jesus predicted this 40 years before it happened. And they couldn't deny it. However, as the church and the world became further and further removed from that historical context of the first century, right, the evidence became less and less widely known. Became less and less 
common knowledge. And instead of digging, digging up the history books, instead what you had was alternative interpretations being developed to account for the events which, des- that, which described as things which must still occur in the future to come, right? We, 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 we started to lose track of history and what took place. And so we don't really see these events happening in history. We don't, we don't see them happening. And so we see Jesus say, well, all this has to take place before this generation passes away. Well, I don't see these events taking place. So we, there must be a different meaning for what Jesus means when he says, you know, this generation will not pass away. And so, and so from there we have a shift in our understanding interpretation of verse 34 taking place. And so I want you to be aware of a couple of common interpretations that have come about that, you're probably, that you probably will be familiar with. But um, again, that have come about in order to fit uh, a futurist interpretation. That have come about in order to make sense of verse 34 in light of the, 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 the theology and the, the, the expectation that the tribulation of these things are going to happen still to come. In other words, in a generation that was thousands of years after Christ, instead of what verse 34 seems to be saying. So first, uh, you have that the word generation here is to be understood in the sense of this race. So this generation really means this race. So that Jesus would be understood as saying that the Jewish race would be preserved. That the Jewish race would not pass away until all these events took place preceding the second coming of Christ. Which, if you think about it, again, we could look at that word, what is generation, how can it be interpreted, how can it be translated. But even that statement, uh, to be more about... It really makes it more about the continuation of Israel and really nothing substantive about the timing of these events, right? Since, especially in the futurist interpretation, Israel is never going to cease to exist in that, in that framework. As a nation, Israel will always continue. So to say that, you know, Israel will never pass away until all these things take place, it's not saying anything. It's not saying anything new. Um, it kind of turns it into a, 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 a Chinese cookie type uh, prophecy. It's also odd because the Greek word genea, though commonly used throughout Matthew, is never used in the sense of, of race or nationality. So again, just exegetically, it's, it's a stretch to, to, to go that route. And in fact, whenever paired with the demonstrative this, right? So whenever Ganea and, and uh, Hutas, this generation, are paired together, every single time, even, your, even people who disagree on this chapter, um, in every other case where you have this generation... Everyone agrees that every other use, Matthew refers to that present living generation at that time. In every other passage that it's given in Matthew. 
And of course, in Scripture, as we sang in Psalm 95, the average uh, understanding of generation would be, at, at the most, 40 years. 25 to 40 years was the literal understanding of, of a generation. So, so we have that aspect. Um, another common, probably more common view today is rather than messing with the meaning of generation, they, they, they'll, they'll say, okay, generation means generation, right? 40 years span. But they'll say that the demonstrative word this, or the article this, is actually a reference to that generation. So instead of saying this generation, what it means is that generation. So... Um, Dispensationalist theologian John Wolvert explains, he says, The most natural meaning, however, is to take it as normally used as a reference to a period of 20 to 40 years. So he says that's what generation normally means. But instead of referring this to the time in which Jesus lived, it refers back to the preceding period that is described as that great tribulation as the Great Tribulation is only three and a half years long. Obviously, those who see the Great Tribulation then would also see the coming of the Lord, right? So, in other words, assuming the dispensational premillennial framework, it's, like, all these things are still to occur in the future, Jesus must be saying it is that generation, whatever that generation is, when that occurs, when they see these things, that that generation will see the coming of Christ and of the end of the age. Which again, would mean that Jesus is stating nothing more than the obvious, really, when you, when you think about that. But I ultimately find all this is not the work that begins with, exe- with exegetical study of what th- these words actually mean in their immediate and surrounding context. But it starts with the assumption of that framework, of that expectation of history and of the end times. And then builds its exegesis off of that assumption. What I want us to consider together is the possibility of the most plain and simple meaning of this word. That Jesus is referring to the generation that he was speaking to. Some of whom would live to see the Jewish-Roman wars and destruction of the temple. Which, by the way, from the beginning of that war to the destruction of the temple was three and a half years, as Daniel prophesied. So first three clarifies that his disciples have come to him privately with their question... And then verse 4 begins saying, And Jesus answered them. He's speaking privately to his disciples. The Olivet Discourse was spoken directly and privately to his disciples. Then the same disciples, right, to whom Jesus has already said, if you recall back in Matthew 16, where he said to his disciples, he said, Truly I say to you, there's that statement again, Truly I say to you, there are, coming, uh, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming to his, in his kingdom. And so, let's, so we're going to take a moment here just to, to briefly unpack 
the possibility that this generation, in verse 34, simply referred to the literal generation to whom Jesus was speaking to at that time. The best way to do this from an exegetical standpoint is to study the use and the meaning of this exact phrase as it was used elsewhere in Matthew. So if you want to turn in your Bibles, you can look at Matthew eleven sixteen. In Matthew 11, verse 16. Again, generation, we see it used uh, in other ways. Uh, sorry, elsewhere in Matthew. Um, but as I said, it never refers to race or nationality. It's referring to, always referring to uh, that, that literal interpretation, the 40 years expectation. But we're going to look briefly at that combination of this generation specifically when you combine those two words. So Matthew eleven sixteen. But to whom shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. So here Jesus is speaking of his contemporaries. And by the way, there's all these verses, there's no disagreement. There's total unity on, on how it's to be interpreted. He's speaking of his contemporaries who are, witness, who are witnesses to his coming, rejecting both the, his forerunner John the Baptist and Christ himself, because, of course, they did, not, they did not dance when they said dance, right? Jesus and John, they came not on the terms of the people, but on God's terms. And they did not meet the the demands and the false expectations of the religious elites. And so so he compares this generation to children, right? Trying to play music with their playmates, trying to get them to do things that they don't want to do. Well, if we continue in Matthew 12, 41. So this generation clearly referred there to the generation who was witnessing his ministry, Matthew twelve forty one. Matthew twelve forty one. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at, ju- at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. So again, much like chapter 11, Jesus is denouncing the people of his day, right? the generation before him, who witnessed his coming with their own eyes, with their own ears, and still rejected him. And and he compares that both to the repentant faith of the Ninevites, who upon hearing of God's judgment, he says that they repented. And to the Gentile queen of Sheba, who who, she went out of her way traveling, I mean, a long distance, a long way to see and to hear the wisdom of Solomon herself. He's saying... Those, you know, Nineveh, the Queen of Sheba, they would stand as a testimony 
against the hard-hearted unbelief of Israel. Because unlike Nineveh, who heard the word, they repented, the Queen of Sheba, she goes searching, she goes traveling to seek and hear the word of God. Here, we have Israel. They don't need to go anywhere. Right? They don't need to go a great distance to hear the word of God. The word of God has come to them. Nor do they need to ask for a greater prophet than Jonah. Than the word who became flesh and dwelt among them. You couldn't ask for a greater prophet to come and and to hear his word. And yet they reject him. And so so he compares Nineveh and the queen of the south saying that they would stand in judgment upon that generation. who had They couldn't ask for anything more. And they did not believe. Again, that exact, so so the the last phrase we see of this generation, it's the exact same phrase as our text in Matthew 24, 34, is what he used in Matthew 23, verse 36, which we read earlier. So in Matthew 23, 36, the same, exact same phrases in a different order. Truly I say to you, All these things will come upon this generation. It's just, it's missing that double negative. Will by no means um, pass away until these things, these things happen. The vast majority of theologians, again, as, as long as we're talking about Matthew 23, verse 36, the vast majority of theologians from all sides are in agreement that this generation in chapter 23 was speaking of the pending judgment of Jesus' contemporaries, of the scribes and the Pharisees before him who were going to persecute the church and persecute Christ and persecute his disciples. And of course, that leads then when Jesus makes that statement... And that leads him to weeping over Jerusalem in verse 37. And declaring that the temple was desolate in verse 38. And so thus, again, my point is simply that if we are going to remain consistent, we have every reason to naturally conclude that when Jesus said all these things in verse 34... He was declaring that everything mentioned, right, all these things he's been telling them about would take place within that time frame of their current generation. Just like this generation meant for every other use in Matthew. All of which, again, the reason why we need to hear that truly I say to you, all of it would have been incredibly difficult for them to imagine. It might be hard for us to imagine, and we're going to get there, and I'm going to try to, we're going to unfold what all that looks like. But it was even harder for them to imagine how that, this could take place in their, their generation. As we talked about the, the temple, we talked about its glory and its, just, its massive size and, and, um, and stability that it brought to Jerusalem. But also, this was a time of unprecedented peace in Rome. Uh, mo- most people, I don't know if you've heard of the, the idea of the Pax Romana. Has anybody heard that? The Pax Romana. There was a time... Of basically 200 years in the Roman Empire, where I mean, you, you had battles, you had you you had um, you know these little fights and conflict going on, 
But there was no major war. There was no serious wars in the Roman Empire for 200 years. It was, it was the time of peace. Uh, at that point for about 100 years. When Jesus is telling them this. Talking about wars and rumors of wars. And, then they're, and they're saying, no, this is, this is the Pax Romana. This is, right, this, we, we know no, nothing about this. And yet 40 years later, the Jewish war with Rome brought the complete destruction of the temple. The 18th century, a Baptist pastor, and he was a premillennial scholar. His name was John Gill. Uh, John, I don't know, it, it, I've kind of just been recently introduced to John Gill. And if, if you haven't used him or read him, he, his commentary is free. I forget what the website is, but you could probably Google it. Uh, of all of Scripture. And it's very helpful. John Gill was the pastor of the same church that Charles Spurgeon uh, pastored in. Uh, I think maybe 50 years before Charles Spurgeon. And he wrote this. He said, this is a full and clear proof. That not anything that is said before verse 34. Relates to the second coming of Christ. The day of eternal judgment. And the end of the world. And the end of the world. But that all belong, again, that all belong, all, everything from verse 4 to 34 belongs to the coming of the Son of Man in the destruction of Jerusalem and to the end of the Jewish state as the elect people of God. So in light of this, a, a consistent reading of verse 34 even leads dispensationalist commentator David Turner to admit, he says, although some futurists argue that the word refers to either the nation of Israel or to the eschatological generation that is alive when G- at Jesus' second coming, he says that the use of the term, this generation, clearly shows that Jesus is talking about his contemporaries. So there's various testimonies to that from, from various theological uh, standpoints. So now the heavy lifting is behind us, right? The foundation, foundational contextual study has been laid. And now we are ready for the real fun to begin when we come back next week to, this, to our text. As we'll begin to unpack the rest of this, the discourse, we're going to go in verse 4 and, and just go verse by verse over the next month. And we're going to, as we're do, we do that, we're also going to be browsing as I said, third-party, extra-biblical, historic sources testifying to the fulfillment of these things that Jesus predicted. And, and, you're, and you're going to see it's with jaw-dropping accuracy. Early church historian uh, Eusebius, he wrote the following concerning the Olivet Discourse, roughly 200 years after, after these things took place. He said, But the number of calamities... With uh, which everywhere fell upon the nation at that time, the extreme misfortunes to which the inhabitants of Judea were especially subjected, the thousands of men as well as women and children that perished by the sword, by famine, and by other forms of death innumerable. He says all these things, as well as the great many sieges which were carried on against the cities of Judea, and the excessive sufferings endured by those that fled to Jerusalem itself, as to a city of perfect safety. And finally, 
the general course of the whole war, as well as, particular, as, well as its particular occurrences in detail, and how at last the abomination of desolation proclaimed by the prophets stood in the very temple of God, so celebrated of old, the temple which was now awaiting its total and final destruction by fire, he says, all these things anyone that wishes may find accurately described in the history written by Josephus. Okay, so we're going to be, we're going to be taking up Eusebius' recommendation and we're going to be consulting Josephus. I've already introduced you to him a few weeks ago. But we're going to be consulting Josephus who was, a, again, he was a, a Jewish of priestly descent. He fought in the, for, on the Jewish side. He, he eventually defected to Rome. And he ends up being uh, basically an official uh, for uh, the emperor Vespasian. And so God gives us, he, he basically puts this man uh, in, the, in this particular time in history who sees both sides of everything that's going on. And he puts him in a position of, of, of basically royalty to write down all of these events. And we have them today. It's recorded for us today to, to go over. And so as we go through those verses, we'll see, it refl- we'll see how it is reflected in not just in the Bible, but in um, external sources as well. So not only do I believe that this is the most simple and literal interpretation of what Jesus is saying... But I, when we are willing to even consider it as a possibility, right? Just, just, just consider it as we read through the text in these coming weeks that it could be possible. I believe if you are willing to put your traditions and assumptions under the knife of Jesus' words here, that within the context we have been studying for over a month now, you will begin to see how simply and how gloriously it all unfolds, not only to the benefit and the instruction of his disciples during that time, but for our edification in the church today as believers who live and, and uh, follow after the words of Christ. Again, ironically, this text is often used by skeptics today to sow doubt upon the reliability of the scriptures. Right? They'll say, You're Jesus, he's, he predicted these, these tribulations. He predicted all of this would happen within a generation. It didn't happen. So, I mean, so they're, they're making the claim he must have been a false prophet. That's, that's what you'll hear often from skeptics and atheists. Whereas it used to be the go-to passage for Christian apologists in the early church. Because the history of it was all so much more commonly known. So much so that liberal scholars, okay, even in recent times, liberal scholars and, super, and, and, and skeptics of the supernatural in general, right? people who say, you know, the supernatural, the miraculous, this doesn't happen. We'll, we'll, we'll study the Bible, we'll look at these things as, as occurring in history, but anything that is impossible to nature, you know, that's garbage. Right? We're not going to read that. We're not going to accept that as being reliable, what you often have is that, is, is that they, would, they would say that this passage, this, the Olivet Discourse in, in, in verse 34, saying that these things would happen, they say that it, it could not possibly have been written before 70 AD. Why? 
because they see that it all happened. Right? These unbelieving skeptics, they say, Matthew 4 to 34, it could not have been written before 70 AD because he's predicting everything that happened leading up to 70 AD. And so their solution, they're so convinced of it, their solution is, which they do with other texts, no problem, is they say, well, it's, it's not really, you know, that was written after. And they'll, they'll say the same things about the prophecies of Daniel, which foretold these things taking place as well. Hundreds of years before it happened. But today, the vast majority of Christians, I believe, uh, we, I've seen have really abandoned the offensive play that is being advanced by our Lord in giving us this text. Simply because our knowledge of history doesn't, doesn't seem to support the plain meaning of verse 34. And so we've determined instead just to sit back on the defensive. And we'll explain away verse 34. Rather than standing by faith upon the bold assertion that Christ makes here. And, and therefore driving us to do our homework in order to uncover this incredible testimony to Christ's divine authority over man's salvation and judgment and over all of history. And so upon further examination, I trust that your faith and your confidence in the scriptures as the living word of Christ, our God, will be bolstered and, and resurrected by his spirit as we study his words together here. The word of Christ is not only true on paper. Right? They, the words of Christ are not only true in your heart. They're not only true because you have some burning in your bosom. Something that tells you, yes, these words I hear, they are true. They're not only true in your own little quiet place, in your own little tunnel and, and echo chambers. But Christ's word has proven true in the objective events that have impacted the entire course of human history in the world as we know it today. And so it ought to bear the same. So if Christ's word has that kind of effect on all of history, it ought to bear the same consequences and impact upon the events and the experiences in your life. Right? I'm saying... So in other words, Christ's word shouldn't just cause a feeling of truth in you. It shouldn't just cause a feeling of, of, of agreement and, 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 it, and it making sense of all things to you. But it, the, the, we see the word of Christ and its truth ought to actually affect and manifest itself in the world around you, in the life that you live. The word of God is not something to be uh, merely stored up in your heart so that your heart can feel good. What does the psalmist say in Psalm 119? He says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. That it would have, that the internal would have an external effect in reality. The word of Christ cleanses the heart and sanctifies the life of the believer. It is powerful Yet at the same time, the word of Christ brings judgment and condemnation to the one who loves the darkness rather than the light. So again, it's, this, it's a similar application 
as we go through each week, if Jesus is capable of predicting a particular judgment upon a particular generation in a particular place and be spot on in its execution, then certainly we have sufficient grounds to heed the promise of his coming again when he says he will come to judge the entire world in righteousness, spanning across not just one generation, but all generations from Adam until Christ's return when he comes to judge the living and the dead. That means that the time to repent is now. The time to be cleansed of your sins through faith in the death of Christ and to be reconciled to God is today, right? In, in, in other words, it's, it's, not, it's an application of the same principle when he is telling them, when you see these things happen, flee to the mountains. Don't wait. Don't go back to your house and say, I'm going to collect this and collect that. When you hear, when you see the warning sign, when you hear the word of God take, being fulfilled, flee. Seek refuge in him. The day we reconcile to God, we don't know when, his, when he's coming again. Right? He, they, they, he told them, he said, this day is going to come. It, they, they didn't know exactly, but they knew it would be within their life. Well, for all we know, it could be tomorrow. It could be today. And so the day to flee from the wrath to come is today. While the mercy and salvation of King Jesus may still be found. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for the blessing of your word that it is clear. Lord, that it is reliable, that when you that you spoke, and that we clearly see that your word is divine, that you saw you, you, you declared things. Uh, to be before they actually took place. I mean, and that takes us all the way back to Genesis. When you, when you declared the world into existence, when there was nothing, you spoke and there was light. You spoke and the heavens and the earth were created. Well, you spoke judgment in the time of Christ. And it came about, just as you said it would. And you have also spoken of judgment of a time to come. When you will judge the entire world in righteousness. And Lord, we can count on it. We can bank on it. And Lord, we thank you that you sent, that Christ came the first time not to condemn the world, but he came to save us. And he came as an offering to all who would repent and who would find refuge in him. So Lord, we pray that that, that, that you're, I pray that every ear here, every heart would hear this, these words and that they would seek the refuge that is to be found in Christ. That they would seek the forgiveness of sin that has been bought and accomplished in the blood of Christ. And that we would walk as a congregation, that we would walk boldly testifying to these things, to what Christ has done and to what he is doing in this world and to, what, and to the fact that he is coming again. And that we can, we can trust his word and take him at his word. So, Lord, we ask these things for the sake of your Son, that he would be honored and glorified in our lives in this church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.